0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. There was lots of hand-wringing in the Koi community when it got wind of a bill to undo more than 10 years of effort to establish the state's first community subsistence fishing area. HBR reporter
1: Kuubehi Hiraishi
0: joins us live to talk about this. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Catherine. We're talking about Senate Bill 92, uh, which we heard earlier this, which lawmakers heard earlier this session, and that bill would establish a sunset date for these community-based subsistence fishing area designations. So as you mentioned, Haena, uh, the first on the north shore of Kauai, uh, to have their rules adopted in 2015, and these community-based subsistence fishing areas, or CBSFAs, were initially, you know, begun as an experiment in community-based fishery management, so Rules created by that community, uh, which, as you mentioned, took 10 years in Haena and another 10 for uh, Miloli'i, who recently received their designation. And these uh, rules would um, take care of the fishery in, in that particular area, but also acknowledge sort of the traditional fishing practices that may have been particular to that geographic area. So, for example, in Haena, uh, night fishing with flashlights, which we see everywhere, you know, divers going in at night that is uh, was initially banned under the the rules but you could fish by torchlight which was Mm -hmm. done traditionally so it's this way to bring back some of those traditional fishing practices while at the same time sort of naturally managing uh, the demand right of uh, the sort of dwindling supply in some of these areas for a while now. So Senate Bill 92 would establish that sunset date that timeline to when these CBSFAs would essentially be put up uh, for a review and say, hey, do we still need this? Are the fish better in your area? And that's something Big Island Senator Lorraine Inouye says uh, is needed.
0: Because times have changed, now we're into food sustainability. So if there's a point in time where one of the communities already see the -hmm. flourish of fish, and I'm kind of worried about Hawaii, where we're going, because mm-hmm. there's gonna be a point in time when fisheries should open up. That's why we're asking, come report to us, see how you guys doing, you wanna share the ocean so that our people can go back fishing. Uh, and uh, then you can always say, you know what? Okay, I think we're fished over maybe three years, we'll try it uh, and then you know, cl- open it up and close it or whatever. No.
1: So the uh, CBSA uh, FAs are uh, sort of managed within the DLNR, Department of Land and Natural Resources, the Qua- uh, Division of Aquatic Resources. And so they have been working closely, DAR has, uh, with these communities to come up with these rules and then to work with the community on updating them and reviewing them every five, 10, and 20 years. So it was a bit of a surprise for those who have been involved in creating these CBSFAs uh, that there would be sort of this extra layer of government oversight in some sense.
0: Yeah, because they were they t- had talked about that.
1: Right, right, right. And, and so I think all parties agreed in the discussions when there was a hearing before the Senate Water and Land Committee, uh, DLNR, Uh, legislators and the community had uh, been amenable to some point on um, reporting to the legislature and sharing their findings they already do uh, share that with DLNR uh, but there was sort of some skepticism as to what was motivating folks to to pass something like this and have a sunset time on these community based subsistence fishing areas so Leila Kaupu uh, whose family has been practicing traditional opella fishing that's known uh, in the area of Miloli'i for five generations uh, Lee of course, receiving their CBS, uh, SFA designation last year, or their rules approved last year. Uh, she, you know, was a little uh, confused by the rhetoric surrounding this bill. This, from what we read, it ultimately impacts us. It's like putting a time limit on our practices, putting a time limit on our traditions and what we strive for down here, especially in Miloli'i and for other communities who are wanting to bring up CBSFAs within their area. Being that it's a time limitation on CBSFAs, it's like removing, yeah, removing vital resources needed for communities and their efforts. The co-management building block of trust that it takes, right? In the years that it takes for us to build that with, with the agencies. And it also removes the rules, but the rules ultimately is what reflects the knowledge base of the place, the knowledge base of the people from the place. So SB 92 uh, did receive overwhelming opposition at that initial hearing before the Water and Land Commission, I mean, committee. Uh, But it did advance out of that committee five to zero. So it was a question Mm -hmm. to legislators as to what was driving it. We do know one uh, particular uh, group known as H-Fact. They're a group of uh, commercial, small commercial fishermen uh small boat fishermen who have been concerned in some instances of areas along the shoreline being closed up to commercial fishing which for some of them is as you know a matter of bringing uh, putting food on the table and so we do know there was a small a uh, sort of support uh for the bill uh there but uh, we just heard we were awaiting a joint hearing before the Senate committees on the judiciary and ways and means and we just heard back from the WAM committee uh, clerk that uh, they will not uh, be hearing the measure, which essentially would uh, kill it this session.
0: Yeah, but apparently then that group got uh, Senator Noye's ear and this was advancing. And so yeah, they were I'm sure it kind of worried them because if they've kind of worked this out with DLNR, um, it yeah. could
1: be done in-house, right, mm-hmm. instead of that extra sort of legislator hold. But uh, we will see what happens uh, in the future in terms of how these CBSFAs um, continue to grow and uh, additional oversight that the Ledge might think they need in the future. All right, well, thanks so much, Kuvehi. Thanks. We have been
0: talking to HPR's Kubehi hiraishi uh, To read the story, head to our website, hoiipublicradio.org. Public <laughs>
2: Radio dot org. Wailo River Valley, where I used to play, the canyons of Wail standing all alone. The magic of the garden now is calling me back home. When I was young,
0: this is a conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz.
3: Hoa, hua, hau,
0: o ni Onihao o le hua, o ni i hao, o, Molokai, o, Lanai, o, mau, o in today's backyard quiz, we're out in the fields looking at island crops. Coffee, pineapple, and sugarcane were the first commercially planted in 1825 as an experimental venture in Manoa Valley. Two men were responsible. Three years later, some coffee tree cuttings were taken from the Manoa plantation to the Naole area of Kona. In the rich soil, consistent cloud cover and elevation, coffee thrived and continues to be a commercial crop in Kona. By 1842, Big Island coffee trees had made their way to Kauai, where a 1,000-acre plantation was started in Hanalei, and a second followed in 1847. In the 1980s, when sugarcane ceased to be profitable, many cane fields were planted with coffee. That expanded coffee farming across the entire state, moving into 11 major regions in five different islands. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you name the two people whose business venture was the genesis of Hawaiian coffee? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing affordable housing for families, such as the Institute for Human Services. NareedHawaii.com.
0: Our reality check today is with Honolulu Civil beat reporter Blaze Lovell. He's got a story about Governor Josh Green's appointment to head the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Take two. Hi, Blaze. Hey, Catherine. Yeah. So uh, initially, the the name on the roster was Ikaika Anderson that got shot down by the uh, uh, by the Senate, and so now we have Kali Watson.
5: Right. Green uh, appointed developer Kali Watson about a week after uh, Ikaiko withdrew his nomination. Uh, You know, Watson spent the last 20 years uh, heading the Hawaiian uh, Finance—I'm sorry, the Hawaiian uh, Development Board. It's this uh, nonprofit entity that builds affordable housing units throughout the state. Um, And he actually led DHHL in the 1990s under former Governor Ben Cayetano. So he's sort of stepping back into this— Role again. Uh, you know, I told him congratulations and he said, You mean <laughs> condolences, right? <laughs> as you know, it can be a really tough job for them, as, you know, uh, Ikeke Anderson found out a couple weeks ago. But, you know, Callie Watson is saying that he's really excited to be stepping back into um, this position again. He wants to speed up uh, how quickly the department spends the $600 million it got from the legislature last year. And he also wants to, you know, go after and aggressively so. Go after some other funds from different state, county, and federal entities. Uh, He specifically mentioned um, some of the $300 million sitting in the Hoyt Housing Finance and Development Corporation,
1: too.
0: Well, you know, this is the first time we've seen, you know, this kind of money uh, really come DHHL's way, right? I mean, that's been the biggest criticism. The department has said, you know, we need more money to do what we need to do to get people. You know, on the homestead land and into housing, and now they've got the money, but, you know, do they have the wherewithal to do it and spend it?
5: Yeah, and that's a big question. He, he wants to pursue, so, so the department already has a plan on um, how to spend it all within the next two years. That's a deadline the legislature gave them. They want to build out about 3,100 um, housing lots. A Watson's approach, he said he's going to stick to that plan, but he wants to start building housing units alongside, you know, um, uh, that lot development. while they're, So while they're putting in the infrastructure, like water, sewer, electric, he wants to start doing um, housing units, not, you know, take this phased approach where you do the infrastructure first, and then years later come back and start building the houses. He wants to sort of have them going concurrently. And then he's gonna use the funds that they get from different entities, like the feds and um, uh, private uh, developers uh, to, you know, have everything going all at once
0: yeah and you know if he's been in the saddle before um, you know I don't know if that's going to be enough to uh, to win over the senator's votes that he needs in order to uh, you know make his appointment official
5: yeah and he said uh, uh, you, you know he's changed his perspective on uh, you know how the department should be run and how home development should be pursued because he, he's, uh, he's an attorney by trade Worked as a deputy attorney general um, under DHHL for a number of years before becoming director, then became a developer. And he said that really changed his perspective, you know. And now he's sort of thinking about, uh, you know, building houses in this uh, sort of different way and trying to do it faster, like, you know, everybody wants.
0: Well, uh, because this is not an easy job. And there, you know, been lots of, of criticism, you know, levied against previous uh, DHHL directors. Um, you know, what about his past, his history?
5: I mean, yeah, there's been lots of criticism levied against him. There, there was a sort of infamous case of Hilbert Kahali Smith, a quiet homesteader. You know, he, he and others were dealing with some shoddy homes that were built, you, you know, over the decades before Watson became director. It sort of came to head uh, during his tenure, though. Um, and you know, Smith ended up letting himself on fire during a home eviction. He, he killed himself. It was a um, you know a really big case at the time. The department looked into that um, issue. So uh, that, that was one. You know, he, uh, the department faced lawsuits under him. That was another. But in you know, in some ways, that's not the, the, I guess necessarily special just just to him. A lot of the H H L directors have caught flack. And, you know, he has faced opposition from some um, communities where. Uh, He's helped to develop affordable housing, you know, in Miley, the residents, and that they didn't want it there, Um, tried to sue the project. Uh, Watson's camp ended up winning, but he said it almost torpedoed um, the whole thing.
0: Well, you know, there was also a development yesterday. He was named in a a lawsuit uh, involving a canoe that he was uh, paddling and a surfer. Uh, Talk about that.
5: Right, so that surfer, um, at the time, he, he was 17. His name's Kai Kuning. Um, he was surfing the break at Tongs, and uh, he, according to the complaint filed yesterday, he was hit by a canoe that was piloted by Watson and two of his friends. Uh, one of those was another developer that Watson was actually working with, I, I think, at the time. And, you know, Kuning, he, he spent days in the hospital and weeks more in rehab. His attorney, Jim Bickerton, told us that, you know, doctors are still monitoring a blood clot in his brain. They're estimating that the medical bills have totaled five hundred forty eight thousand dollars. So, you, you know, he'll uh, for for Watson in terms of Watson's nomination, you know, he'll be dealing with this legal battle um, and it could create, you know, some fodder for any opponents of his. But I, I spoke to Miley Shimabukoro yesterday. She's the senator in charge of getting Watson's nomination. Uh, you know, she said it won't be an issue for her specifically because in, in her eyes, it was a tragic accident but not one that was malicious
0: okay and when is his confirmation hearing Collie's Collie Watson's hearing it's
5: scheduled right now for March 16th
0: okay all right well thanks so much blaze thanks that was reporter blaze level with today's reality check uh, read the story at civilbeat.org. dot org
4: Support for H.P.R. comes from Bishop Museum's new exhibit, Ola Ka No Excellence in Hawaiian Artistry, Exploring the Genealogy of Hawaiian Artistry Through Generational Transmission of Knowledge. Opening March 11th, bishopmuseum.org.
0: Here in Hawaii, there's a special appreciation for things that are local. And we take that seriously at H.P.R., where 30% of the programs you hear are made in-house by our own team. Everything from morning cafe to the conversation, Bridging the Gap to Evening Jazz. Whether you're a news junkie or a music lover, HPR's local programming keeps you rooted in our shared island community. Learn more about our shows at hawaiipublicradio.org.
4: Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, a member-based community for ages 50 and older with a variety of virtual courses in its Spring 2023 online catalog. More by searching Osher Hawaii
0: lifeguard luke Shepherdson's win at the 2023 eddie cow big wave invitational catapulted him to into the national limelight it also cast a light on the high level of skill and talent of all of the lifeguards that patrol hawaii's beaches the conversations rosa subiono got a chance to talk to Shepherdson about his win and the city's chief of ocean safety, John Titchen, about the men and women who keep a watchful eye over Oahu's beaches.
1: Look at this one. One more taker. Luke Shepherdson wow. with a giant drop. Shepherdson outrunning the avalanche, and he eventually
6: gets eaten up, but Luke Shepherdson doing it again.
2: That's the sound of reactions to Oahu lifeguard Luke Shepherdson surfing a massive wave during the Eddie Aikau Big Wave Invitational back in January. Since winning the event, his life has been a whirlwind of local and national interviews, filming car commercials and celebratory parties, which is the opposite of normal for the humble and low key North Shore family man. I had to wait in a long line to finally get the chance to speak to him. But this is a testament to just how kind and generous he is. He messaged me, gave me his phone number, and told me to call him. So I did. And we talked while he was driving back to work after a lunch break. There are probably hundreds of thousands of people around the world that surf, and as the waves get bigger, that number starts to dwindle. How did you work your way up to charging 20-plus foot waves?
3: It was from when I was about 10 years old, 11 years old, when I started going into four to five foot waves, just like a little bit bigger, and then surfing bigger and bigger waves from then, and that was like the dream. But yeah, my dad taught me how to surf when I was little. I've been in the water as long as I can remember. And then Uncle Liam McNamara and his kids, they are my best friends, and Uncle Liam took me around the world surfing. He took me to Tahiti for the first time when I was 10 years old. And help me out, get boards and everything that I needed. And him being Garrett McInerney's brother, Garrett, was the first person to take me to surfing, like, into a proper way. And it just seemed Uncle Garrett surfing the Eddie. I was there with Landon, and we watched him get his boards ready. But, yeah, just seeing that was, like, surreal to, like, be there and just be around people that are surfing in it. And then going up and seeing all those people, it was just really was ingrained in my mind that i wanted to be a part of it one day
2: any plans to compete in another surf contest here or abroad
3: the eddie is kind of my only plan for surf contests. i am not a good competitive surfer i it really throws me off i get the jitters and the butterflies and all that and i don't feel myself when i'm surfing in contests so i don't really plan on chasing contests anywhere but i do plan on going and chasing perfectly when i can
2: Is that because being on duty that day kind of kept your mind off the contest?
3: Yes, a lot. Yeah, because I wasn't focused on the contest at all. I was focused on all the beach patrons and trying to make sure everyone was in a safe area and all that. And dealing with the crowd and doing the warnings and all that stuff really kept my mind off. I didn't really even watch much of the waves because... The Hawaiian Water Patrol was out there, but when they did say, oh, we have somebody, we're bringing it in or this and that, then I was paying attention. I did see a few waves, but I wasn't too focused on like, oh, this person did that or this person has this score or whatnot. I just was focused on the beach and doing my job. And then when it was my time to surf, I had a break from working and I went out to catch a few waves like I would on any other day at work.
2: And I'm still blown away that a North shore lifeguard paddled out into 40 plus foot waves with professional surfers and surfing legends and won the world's most prestigious big wave surfing competition. It also gives me a whole new respect for the men and women that patrol our island beaches and the skill set they bring to the job, which also made me curious about the current status of Oahu's ocean safety and lifeguard division in December, 2022. Personnel processing delays nearly created a crisis point for the agency. So I reached out to Ocean Safety Chief John Titchen to get an update. Are we short-staffed? Do we need more lifeguards? Where do we stand in that regard?
7: Yeah, it's really interesting. We're, we're not actually short-staffed. I think we have a shortage of positions right now, but we're really improving upon that every year. Ocean Safety, I think, compared to the other first responder organizations, and remember that we we do now talk pretty regularly, mm-hmm. We seem to be doing pretty well at Ocean Safety. Our retention rate is extraordinary. Our attrition rate is very low. We have a number of people who join the organization and stay. So we actually don't have a shortage of interested applicants either. Two years ago, we saw 150 people try out for 15 positions. It was a little more normal this year. We had 40 turnout, but we don't have a shortage of people who are interested in doing the job. We are transitioning our workforce to an alternate work schedule. So we're transitioning to a point where we have our employees working 10 hour days instead of eight. And the reason for this is simple. It's the best bad way to extend our hours to use the personnel that we have and just have them work a longer, a longer day. So they're working four 10 hour days a week the workforce really likes it you know we know our personnel really really enjoy it and they get a third day off the community sees us on duty for longer hours and practically speaking it's far more economical it makes more sense administratively and so we're doing very well in that regard however we probably need about another 20 to 30 personnel to really pull this off island wide to go on this 410 schedule which would extend the hours of all 41 of our towers. So we're getting there. We're very, very excited. I think we're very close. We have a recruit class that will start in a a couple of months. And I think this summer, we're going to start to really get to a point where we can achieve this. And I think the community is expecting that and and very hopeful of seeing that very soon.
2: I, I know there were some recent frustration over how slow the process had been to hire more lifeguards. Has there been resolution to that?
7: I think so, yes. I think from our perspective at Ocean Safety, we realize there are a lot of competing demands for a very finite source of dollars, if you will. So we recognize that to grow our organization as rapidly as we have takes a significant investment. And so it's better to not do it overnight. You want to see that kind of investment right off the bat. But realistically speaking, we're really changing how we've done things for almost a century. And so to do so overnight would be unrealistic. And so I'm very hopeful of seeing investment by this administration in our budget and and adding our personnel and I think more importantly, I think our our lifeguards are, you know, I think they're looking at what's happening and realizing we are a very good part of the city government. We are very valuable workforce and a good place to invest in and so I think our our workforce sees that and, and then in turn the community sees that so we're very hopeful
2: and when I think about ocean safety and I think about the lifeguards that we have here and what their skill set is and and the kinds of conditions that they have to be ready for and and, and capable of rescuing people in and then we think about Luke Shepherdson's recent win at the Eddie and how it shines a light on the quality of the lifeguards that we have here what do you think it says about our lifeguards as a whole that we have this history of these extraordinary watermen? And this year, one of them wins the most prestigious big wave surfing contest in the world.
7: Luke's win is a win for lifeguards everywhere. You know, he's an everyman. And, and you know, what's really cool about Luke Shepherdson winning is that on the best day at the world's most famous big wave spot in the world, the most proficient person in the water was the guy who sits in the lifeguard tower that's amazing. But I see that as a testament to all of our 288 men and women. Uh, in our ranks, we have world-class paddlers, swimmers, champion body surfers and bodyboarders, watermen and, and women who surf, stand-up paddle, foil, kayak, I mean, anything in the water. And so that's how Luke's Win helps demonstrate the caliber of talent and proficiency in the water that we feature at Honolulu Ocean Safety. I mean, there's no better statement to the community Than realizing the person on duty and standing watch is so proficient so as to be recognized in that regard. And so it's not just Luke, it's all of, all of us, you know, it's all, it's all 288 lifeguards for the Island. And so that, that's the statement that it made. And and we're thrilled. It's just a thrilling moment and for lifeguards everywhere, not just Oahu, but throughout the state and really around the world.
2: And as a avid beach goer, it makes me feel really safe that, Our lifeguards are so talented so skilled all across the state
7: yeah 100% and I think you know a lot of people don't realize that the job is it can be split seconds it can come down to split seconds that you're the difference between someone going home to their family or getting on a plane and going back to to their home and and that's really the most exciting part of the job and at the same time is really the statement that I think is is most impressive about that Is the confidence and the ability to manage in the water. If you can't save yourself first, it's going to be tough to save somebody else. And so, thanks for recognizing that because that's, you know, I think that's what gives most of our personnel the joy, the satisfaction at coming to this job.
2: It's a one of a kind job. You get to work outdoors in sunny weather with an incredible view of the ocean and be responsible for lives. Lifeguards are constantly refining their abilities and expanding their skill set to make sure they're both physically and mentally equipped to handle the danger that comes with the job. Being able to ride giant waves in Waimea Bay is just gravy on the top. Before Luke Shepardson and I parted ways on our phone call, I asked him what comes next now that he's surfed 40 plus footers at Waimea Bay. Does he see himself charging monsters at Nazaré in Portugal? home of the world record for biggest wave ever surfed?
3: To be honest, everybody that I've heard talk about Nazare says it's a death pit. (laughs) Everyone that has been there has said they've gotten the worst beatings of their life. It does sound very, very, very scary to go there, but I think it'd be cool to go at least one time in my life and try it out. I don't want to surf it as big as it gets, but just to surf it on a pretty good-sized day, it'd be cool to experience it.
0: That was North Shore Lifeguard and Eddie Winner, Luke Shepherdson, and Ocean Safety Chief John Titchen. They were talking to HBR's Russell Saviono. <laughs> Support local news coverage on HPR. The world's largest volcano, Mauna Loa, has erupted for the first time in nearly 40 years.
3: So there's no civil defense warnings, no public or police warnings at all.
2: Mauna Loa eruptions have typically all started in mokua Veo Caldera, and then about half of them have moved into a rift zone, and that's exactly what we saw for this eruption. We
0: have Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth on the line now.
3: We've uh, been going out to our community, we've been educating our community, we've, we've been working with our partners. We've actually been doing that for the last couple of months, and so we're in a pretty good sense of preparedness, but you can never be too prepared.
0: I wasn't frantic or anything like that because we were already kind of expecting it. I already had some things semi-packed because over time we've been told that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when.
3: We would like to steer people towards the uh, Hawaii Civil Defense website. There's a hazard map. We get that information up very quickly. Donate
8: today at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: And keeping with our surfing theme, Big Waves, Big Lessons. The monster waves of Waimea and Makaha make for schooling like no other. And it's the setting for the film Big Wave Guardians. It debuted in Hawaii last summer. It tells a story of how lifeguarding came to be and celebrates the profession. Modern-day ocean safety has its humble roots with Hawaii wave riders Surfers whose skill and innovation helped shape the life saving tools that Pioneer rescues as the surfing bar began to get raised. Bigger waves, bigger risk. Jim Kempton is a writer on that film. He learned to surf in the reefy breaks of Guam and went on to become editor and publisher of Surf Magazine. He currently heads the California Surf Museum.
6: It was kind of interesting. We came over, I guess, in January, and we were intending to do a piece on the North Shore because this is a sort of a series on surfing culture, and obviously the North Shore is an epicenter of it. And when we got done and we came back and we looked at what we had, there wasn't much, there wasn't enough there to do the North Shore, and I kind of said, you know, the North Shore could be a whole series of its own. But of the 27 people that we interviewed, 17 of them are lifeguards, and the things that they were telling us about that in particular were just so fascinating and so compelling as stories that I think we have a great piece here to do and Marty Hoffman who is our producer to his everlasting credit said you know I love this I think there's a lifeguard in every city at every pool in the nation and they're all guys that people there respect and this is their hero's heroes and let's do it. So we got the green light and, and we wrote the script and everyone really liked the script and the director was just a fantastic, talented young guy who I'd never realized before how different it is to write scripts than writing a book, because you it almost sounds silly to say, here's where the dramatic part is, but it's up to the director to take that and make it come alive. And he, I think, really did an epic job of doing that. And so when we got done, we just realized that we had something that was a story that Really had never been told before, and yet one that's so worthy of being told. And all these guys who, you know, not only work to save people's lives, but also are some of the best surfers in the world as well, oftentimes.
0: So it was interesting to me, though, just to learn the history of lifeguarding, you know, through, mm-hmm. through the people that mm-hmm. you interviewed. And it, it's amazing to think that, yeah, you started out trying to do a film on something else, and it morphed into a stronger story.
6: It's often that way in life. You know, you, you go into discovery, and you find things that you never expected, and sometimes don't find what you were hoping for, or don't find enough of it to do, or you just, you have an idea about something that's just too large. One of the things that I think is really important, and you look at so many of the great films, they're really small pictures that really explore something in depth.
0: And you do showcase uh, a lot of the lifeguards from the North Shore, you know, because they deal with those monster waves there at Waimea. Um, you you highlight um, uh, the Kaulana family, you know, up at Makaha and the history and all the things that Brian has tried to do, teaching kids and teaching and passing on what his father, you know, raised him with, those, those uh, values. Uh, and skills. Right. But the fact that what we've developed here then is taught in other places is maybe something that, right. that people may not appreciate.
6: Well, you know, it, it, that was another really, really um, satisfying thing about the, the response that we've gotten from people is just how much I think people love, and in this case, it happens to be a, a very true and, and, and not contrived story, that um, people love to see Uh, something spring up kind of organically and take the world by storm, and especially when it's something that has such a positive effect on so many people around the world, and to see it come from, from people who really know the subject and are doing something to save lives and make the world a better place, all that's kind of really satisfying to the audience, even when there's some sadness about losing people, because... You don't want that to happen, but seeing good that comes out of that rather than it just being a tragedy, I think is really, really uplifting and compelling for people.
0: There was one scene in the film that I had to chuckle at, you know, and it was the film that that highlights uh, Duke Hanamoku, you know, the program where he was on uh, This Is Your Life. And the thought about thanking those people that Duke rescued, the fact that it took 30 some years for them to be able to thank him. I remember that crossed my mind when I first saw that clip. So uh-huh. I really appreciated, yeah. you know, the fact that you had that that segment about people, about the lifeguards thanking people who helped them in their lives. Yeah,
6: and, and as you saw, I mean, a lot of those people, and I mean, we probably should have made a more of a note of it. But I mean, you know, like Kalani Chapman and Mikey Red and Cole Christensen, Those are some of the best surfers in the world. Dusty Payne. I mean, they are professionals and at the top of their game, and it's it's really moving to see them so thankful and so appreciative about it. And we spent a lot of time digging up some of the people, you know, finding some of the people that were saved by people who always wanted to thank them, like the guy that's saved by Johnny Angel and. Uh, and Mark he was someone we had to track down but he was so so appreciative that we did and he got a chance to to say what he did so yeah there's a lot of very poignant moments Because we really think this is a celebration of sort of, you know, part of the Polynesian culture, the fact that these people are such water people and that the culture is so embedded in in this whole world. And like we were saying, people didn't really need to to deal with lifeguarding because they were comfortable in the water. But as things have progressed and and other peoples have come, you know, it's become super important.
0: And that was an interview that we did with Jim Kempton back in June of 2022. He heads the California Surf Museum and he was a writer on that film Big Wave Guardians. And here's a bit of the trailer.
5: When a surfer is knocked unconscious, you only have about four to six minutes
0: before they run out of oxygen.
1: Lifeguards, it's like a group of warriors.
0: In a moment's notice, they'll put their life on the line to save a perfect stranger.
7: I've had multiple friends smash their head into the reef and, you know, thank God the lifeguards were there. I don't think they would have made it.
2: For us growing up in Hawaii, surfing has always been like a village mentality or family atmosphere. Because when something happens here, everything stops.
0: Because what we cherish is life in general. You don't become a lifeguard to be thanked.
3: You become a lifeguard because you want to help people. There's such a rush to save another person's life. I always want to be there to be a first
1: responder and give them their next birthday. When I do see somebody that could potentially have passed away is still around, that's the greatest
0: gift there is, you know, is, is life itself.
8: Look at that wave, taking everyone out. The skis running for cover.
0: We reach the victim no matter
1: how big it is. 30 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet, 60 feet. We ain't gonna let go of our... We ain't gonna let go.
0: Time now for your backyard quiz answer. We asked if you knew the names of two men responsible for commercially planting the first Hawaii coffee crop in 1825. Coffee actually arrived in 1817 when Don Francisco de Palomarín brought it to the islands. Unfortunately, his plantings didn't succeed. But in 1825, plants were brought from Brazil and successfully uh, planted uh, in Manoa. Uh, From those, attempts were uh, made to grow coffee in several different regions on different islands. In 1828, coffee tree cuttings, likely a bourbon variety called kanaka kopi, was introduced in Kona. Coffee flourished in the favorable conditions there and continues to be a commercial crop. By 1847, there were also two coffee plantations on Kauai. And of these early commercial attempts, the only one that remains in production is Kona. Today, coffee growing is successful in 11 major, uh, 11 major regions on five islands. And the men who started it all, uh, Hawaii High Chief Boki, governor of Oahu on the, at the time, and his British partner, John Wilkinson. We stumped you on that backyard quiz. Uh, but if you have an idea for a quiz, please write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs>
4: support for HPR comes from Hakawone, committed to building a neighborhood in Kakaakomakai where all are welcome, offering keiki and kupuna care, and including a cultural center, farmers' markets, and housing options. Hakawone.com.
8: If you're passionate about business development and public radio, we've got the job opportunity for you. HPR is seeking candidates for a corporate relations associate. Media sales experience is highly desired, and a love for public radio is a plus. Learn more about this position at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Application deadline is March 15th.
0: When it comes to fitness classes, it's not one-size-fits-all. So how do you design an exercise program for the aging? As we get older, we have to deal with injuries or chronic illnesses or maybe a hip or knee replacement. Well, an online fitness program called Balance aims to try and help modify routines as we age. Founder Katie Reed considers herself a technologist who sought to help her aging grandmother during the pandemic. People, when they build products, they typically build
8: solutions for the problems they've encountered themselves, And when it comes to technologists, uh, many of us are younger. It's a new breed, a new new different type of profession and problem solving. Uh, So it makes sense that a lot of technologists focused on problems that didn't affect the aging population. My background and my career has been in startups. I love building products. I love building companies out in New York City. But during the pandemic, I moved in with my grandmother in Palm Springs, California. And I grew up with her and my grandfather Six months prior to the pandemic, my grandfather passed away. He was my hero, Uh, as she is today. And exercise was so important to him. Even in the earliest of mornings, I remember him doing crunches in the living room or doing laps in the pool because he knew that exercise was the key to maintaining agency in his life and being a man in control of his own destiny. And he was a stubborn man, so that meant a lot to him. So I moved in with my grandmother and I had this front row seat of watching her rebuild her identity. The love of her life was gone. Uh, My hero was gone. And her identity was changing as well with work, moving from retirement, from uh, a profession with my grandfather into retirement. And she was looking at this third chapter of her life, wondering what was next, Uh, and her body was different. And I just saw the light flicker in her eyes. And and I'd never seen that before. She's the strongest woman I've ever met. So during the pandemic, none of us felt like we were in control. The world is just happening to us. And one way that you can take control of your own body or your own life is through your body with fitness or meditation, for example, or practicing gratitude, journaling. For me, I had apps like Peloton coming into the home, charismatic trainers, uh, accessible platforms, a variety of content, a great brand that I was so excited to tell other people about and to participate with. At the end of the day, it was community driven. But for my grandmother, when it came to fitness, all she had was gyms for the most part. And she was never gonna be a gym goer, (laughs) ever. She didn't know what to do when it came to exercise for her body type if she went to a gym. She wasn't comfortable to work out in front of others at a gym. She didn't want to deal with parking, and I, I think everyone here in Hawaii actually can relate to that part. Yes, as I've been <laughs> here for the last two months, and I understand that. So, what would exist for her, and the digital options that did exist for my grandmother were either silverine brand, and it didn't resonate with her at all, at all. I mean, when I think of her, I'm thinking of a bright pink colored shirt, <laughs> and it's the opposite of silver, and. The exercises that existed on these digital fitness platforms were more exclusively chair-based, and that's not what she needed. She didn't need Peloton-type content where you're going to chop on the ground and do a burpee. That's not meant for her. But also these slower chair-based classes weren't up to speed to either push, push her either. So what we wanted to reimagine at Balanced is if a digital fitness platform were to be built from the ground up for healthy aging effective content designed for all the different body types as we age because we become more heterogeneous. Whether it's a uh, a knee replacement or shoulder injury that doesn't quite heal, these are blockers for other content. Uh, We've been able to alleviate those with our own content programming that you can only find at Balanced, designed by physical therapists. But then also to have a great brand that embraces the aging and time of opportunity when it comes to age and a technical application built from the ground up for complete accessibility and ease of use and personalization to put people into the classes best for them. So that was your motivation, was to really do something
0: for your grandmother because you saw the need.
8: I can't imagine a better way to spend my time, Catherine. My legacy, I am their legacy. Uh, it's, it's the best thing I can do to honor everything that they've given me in this world.
0: Well, you know, I I recall hearing, uh, you know, cases where, oh, somebody fell and they can't get up. And I'm like, what do you mean they can't get up? You know, and I I never got that as a young person. And now that I'm older and the other day I couldn't get up and I was like, oh, my goodness, I guess I'm at that stage. And as I was preparing for this and I was, you know, looking at, at balance Um, issues, you know, as you get older, right? And I I was surprised. uh, I read something that said, oh, you know, like if you're 60 years old, you try and balance on one foot. You know, most people can only hold it for like 30 seconds. And I was like, really? But it's those kinds of things that that you can work on, these, these small things, but they're very effective.
8: Absolutely. I mean, exercise can modify all top five of the chronic conditions, for example, instead of medicine, which is a huge proponent of which we're... to back uh, prevention rather than being reactive to when something does happen. So with fall prevention, typically people enter fall prevention only once they're worried about balance, only once balance is an issue. But balance is a lagging metric behind having strength in the proper areas or cardio endurance, uh, mobility and flexibility. So with the balanced programming that we have called the balance method, we take all four of those cornerstones of which are the pillars of healthy aging so that balance becomes if it does become an issue, it's much later in life because there's nothing that helps us age from Peloton to say just physical therapy. Now we can push off physical therapy if we ever need it much further because because we have a fitness platform to help us age.
0: You know, since I started thinking about this, I mean, uh, don't laugh, but I mean, I have one of those toothbrushes that time how long you brush your teeth. Absolutely, and those I started been to balance on one foot for the length of that. Just, I mean, it's a small thing, but I just really started to be conscious of those things. Absolutely, I mean, and that's coming back to behavioral change.
8: Because you have the toothbrush and you can time it, you built that into your routine, which is so important, and just doing a little bit of something each day. Uh, We also bake that into our classes, where our class lengths can be from 10 minutes to 15 to 30. At the end of the day, uh, any movement's better than none. We just wanna make sure that when you do do movement and you do practice fitness, you're getting the best you can possibly get.
0: Well, I I know, like I said, the physical therapy exercises really work. You know, it's amazing just what three or four four things can do in, in just helping you function. Absolutely. <laughs> and so that's kind of what's behind then these balance classes. It is.
8: And we do bake in fall prevention, if you will, or balance exercises. If I do a, a yoga standing-based tree on one foot, I'm practicing balance. But also we have embedded in every single class at Balanced uh, getting down onto the floor and back up off the floor because that's such an important exercise to do. But when we do it in the class, it's a very natural progression as part of the workout linear flow. It's not like we're stopping the class educate everyone. Everyone stop. We're about to fall, practice fall prevention <laughs> because that doesn't feel fun at all. It doesn't make it an engaging experience that you can't wait to get back to with a big smile on your face. Uh, and that's the way that people experience our classes. It's baked in.
0: So what does your
8: your grandma think now?
0: Oh, (laughs) Oh, she (laughs) loves it.
8: Uh, Especially Tai Chi. So we just actually started experimenting with Tai Chi once we knew that we were going to be launching here in Hawaii, and we knew how important it was to the community here. So we just onboarded James, who has over 40 years of experience there. And now we're getting feedback on the ground from speaking to so many people about all the different types of Tai Chi. And that's now discovering the roadmap on how we can accommodate those, which is really exciting.
0: You know, uh, I drive by in Kaimuki and I see a a gentleman, you know, working on his Tai Chi moves. I recall seeing, um, you know, the the Chinese community in North Beach in San Francisco doing the same thing, you know, at uh, Washington Park. And, yeah, it's just those kinds of simple things, simple imagery, but you really do get a workout, you know, whether it's your core or, you know, a certain part of your body that needs to be strengthened.
8: You do, and it's very holistic. Uh, it's also practicing mindfulness. And what we're looking into right now is even an introduction to Tai Chi where you can focus on the movements. So uh, what I've learned recently by learning more about Tai Chi, our head of trainer talent and programming uh, is the one most embedded in this. But when you actually have your hands in front of you, you don't move your hands, you're actually moving your body along and people imp- in, uh, inaccurately think you're actually moving your hands and you're following your hands when it's the opposite. So what we break down in our classes are a bunch of different programs. And these programs uh, introduce all the basics so that we can get formed down correctly, which is not only important for any type of fitness class, but especially when thinking about the cultural significance and all the history of these great practices like Tai Chi itself. How are you uh, pitching this out to people? 55 and older or what? Uh, 55 and older, but we have folks of all different ages on our platform. Uh, We just noticed that seniors in particular or folks after the age of 55 didn't have many options that met them where they're at. Uh, And that's the market, and that's the demo that we wanted to focus on most. Uh, However, it's no such thing as senior fitness. It just so happens that as we age, our bodies become more heterogeneous instead of homogeneous. Most of the fitness applications that exist program for a one-size-fits-all. So Gail, who is 76, uh, currently on our platform today, she used to go to Planet Fitness, and she loved the group workout classes. She had a blast. However, the trainer, who was in the very front of the room, designed their programming in mind for people that maybe look like myself, that have a one-size-fits-all profile. So when the trainer says for everyone to get down and do a plank, Gail looks around like, are you crazy? I had a knee replacement that puts pressure on my knees. There's no way I'm gonna do a plank. We can preemptively understand older adult bodies at scale because of the physical therapists and how we plan with the intention for heterogeneity in the room. Therefore, all of our classes include modifications, especially for the top 80% of joint pain areas, knees, back, shoulders, when it comes to uh, as we age. So with Gail, we now offer a wall plank. So she mm-hmm. never has to pause, raise her hand, draw attention to herself, or simply just wait until the next move and feel left out.
0: And so, do you have
8: input then from physical therapists as you've shaped this program? Oh, absolutely. We mm-hmm. have two in the team, mm-hmm. and the head of clinical for us is Dr. Rob Lendell and he's at USC, which is the number one PT school in the country.
0: We've been hearing from Katie Reed, founder of the Balance Fitness Program, aimed at Kapuna. It has just focused a rollout in this market and offers uh, classes uh, streaming five times a week. To find out more, look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That does it for us for this hour. Up tomorrow, we have a Hanaho hour lined up around salt or pa'akai. Got a salt story to share or questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And wanna listen back to something you heard? Find The Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.